Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this CHEST Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, your CHEST podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for the second part of a series of podcasts with Dr. James Stoller, where we're discussing leadership development in line with his series of articles published in CHEST. Today, we will be discussing um, his second article, Change Leadership Essentials for Chest Medicine Professionals. Dr. Stoller is a pulmonary and critical care physician and the chairman of the Education Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. He holds the Gene Wall Bennett Professorship of Medicine at Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine and the Samson Global Leadership Academy Endowed Chair. His pulmonary research interests regard alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, and he served on the board of directors of the Alpha-1 Foundation. His interest in leadership and leadership development stems from his pursuit of a master's in organizational development, and he serves as an adjunct professor of organizational behavior at the Weatherhead School of Management of Case Western Reserve University and honorary visiting professor at the Bay School of Business and City University in London. He directed the American Thoracic Society's Emerging Leaders Program and directs CHEST Leadership Development Course. His recent book, Better Humans, Better Performance, regards achieving high organizational performance through creating cultures anchored in the seven classical virtues. So thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you, Gretchen. I'm privileged to be here. Flattered to be asked. Well, to get us started off, this series of articles you wrote is all about leadership skills. And it's intriguing to me to note that the first thing you chose to hone in on was leading change. So why is the ability to lead change so important and what makes it so difficult to begin with? So change, managing change and leading change is an essential leadership competency. Um, They're really inseparable uh, from my point of view. Evidence for that uh, comes from several sources. If I look at the criteria for leadership, In my own institution, there are four pillars of leadership uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, the first of which is leading change, uh, accompanied by driving results, inspiring and coaching and connecting teams. Um, Some other data in support of the importance of leading change is a study that we published uh, in follow-up to a leadership development course called Leading in Healthcare, which ran about a 13-year history at the Cleveland Clinic. And we followed a cohort of 272 physicians who participated in the course. We followed them over 10 years. And within 10 years after participating in the course, 43% of those individuals were promoted to leadership uh, positions at my institution. And when we looked at the correlates of their selection in emotional intelligence competencies, one of them was being a change catalyst. So leading change is is critically associated with leadership. I'll stop there. So John Cotter, one of the greatest minds in business and change, developed a model of the eight stages of change. Can you please briefly review those stages for our listeners? Sure. Um, Cotter's work, I think, is, is really one of the uh, underpinnings. And he did, as you suggested, uh, propose a model in his book called Leading Change, 
Um, there are eight steps, and Cotter's model pr proposes that these steps uh, occur in temporal sequence, although not necessarily linearly. What I mean by that is the first step is establishing a sense of urgency. So humans, uh, doctors, all humans are naturally change-averse. I'm reminded of what Woodrow Wilson said, if you want to make enemies, try to change something. So we need a compelling case, a burning platform. That's the first step. The second step in Cotter's model is creating a guiding coalition, a group of people with enough uh, representation to lead the change effort. The third is developing a vision and strategy. What does success look like for our change effort? The fourth and very important is communicating the change vision to every, all of the stakeholders that are involved. Uh, the fifth is what Cotter calls empowering broad-based action. What he means is making it easy for people to drive the change and comply with the change initiative. The sixth is what he calls generating short-term wins. So rewarding and recognizing, um, sort of like how do you eat an elephant when the change is a big, uh, a big ambitious goal? The answer is one bite at a time. And so, you know, helping people and rewarding and recognizing their contributions is very important to sustaining the marathon of change, if you will. The seventh and eighth steps in Cotter's model are uh, what he calls consolidating gains and producing more change. And the eighth is called anchoring new changes in the culture. My read of these two steps is really about, uh, about um, developing people and leadership succession so that you recruit people that are aligned with the change effort and you are cultivating leadership so that if there's a leadership transition, the change effort continues. And great leadership is also very mindful of leadership succession. Uh, and so those are the eight steps of change in the Cotter model. And you also discuss another change model, the amicus model. What's unique about it compared to the prior John Cotter model? So thank you for that question. Uh, the second model was framed by two authors, Silverson and Kornacki, in a book called Leading Physicians Through Change. And what's specific about that model it was is that unlike the Cotter model, it was developed with a medical context in mind. Uh, the fundamentals are the same. The format looks different, uh, but it, it includes things like leadership, having a shared vision, uh, having a culture that underlies the change effort. And in the Silverson and Kornacki amicus change model, they have uh, five what they call change levers, one of which is developing tension. That's the same, in my mind, as Cotter's model of creating urgency. Uh, another is addressing resistance, which is getting rid of obstacles to change. The one that's unique to the amicus model is the idea of involving physicians early. And the reason I think this is so relevant to change in, in healthcare, particularly when doctors are involved, is that uh, we as physicians, and this is my own assessment, others may push back on this, but we as physicians have commonly grown up in a command and control environment in which there's significant hierarchy in medicine. And uh, the, the consequence of that is that one of, when, when one of your attendings or when one of the, 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 the leaders in your organization tells you what to do and you know it's the wrong thing to do, whether it's a clinical step or an administrative step, doctors know how to subvert change and know how to go underground, if you will. They go subterranean. They get the work done in a sort of invisible way. So I think the importance of involving physicians early in Silverson and Kornacki's view is you want to get doctors' voices in the conversation early so that they're engaged 
and they participate in the model as opposed to, if you will, going subterranean and end arounding the model, which is something that we've all learned to do by virtue of how we've been trained. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Now, I love the idea of the payoff matrix. Can you discuss that briefly and how it can help you guide your change efforts and where to spend your time? Sure. Uh, Payoff matrix is a a classic instrument in organizational development. Imagine a two-by-two table where the horizontal axis uh, is easy to do versus hard to do, and the vertical axis is big payoff versus small payoff. So in the four quadrants that result, uh, in the easy to do and big payoff, that that's that's a grand slam to use a baseball parlance. You know, those those are change efforts that we really want to focus on because they're easy to do and they have a big impact. In the easy to do and small payoff box is what we might call low hanging fruit. Maybe that's a double in baseball parlance. There's another box that is hard to do and has a big payoff. Uh, this might. Uh, examples might include things like implementing an electronic medical record. For those of you who've done that, it's a, a heavy lift, but it has many benefits for the organization and for patients. And uh, those require extra effort, but are worth doing. And then finally, there's a box uh, uh, that has a very small payoff and is hard to do. You might call that proceed with caution box. And the, the value of the payoff matrix is it allows a change agent who's about to implement a change initiative or lead a change initiative to filter out those things, in my view, that are hard to do with very small payoff. Because again, following Woodrow Wilson's advice, if you want to make enemies, try to change something. If you're going to make enemies, you want to make sure the value proposition is worthwhile. And it's not really enemies, of course, but people experience change in a stressful way. And you don't want to stress people unless there's a value proposition that makes it worthwhile. So that's the payoff matrix. I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Now, we know that change is naturally hard for people, and it can actually represent a form of loss. So can you discuss the change curve and how it actually relates to the stages of grief? Yeah. So this is uh, Kubler-Ross's work on, on grief that we all recognized and learned in medical school, you know, going from denial to frustration to despair to acceptance uh, to emergence. And the same model really applies to the natural history of change when people experience change. Think of yourself uh, as being confronted with a new EMR. You might say, oh, this is going to blow over. Um, You deny it. Then you realize that it's not going to blow over and you're frustrated because you don't know the keystrokes until you learn them. And then you sort of get depressed. And then you realize that this is here to stay. So I better figure out how to you know, get my dot phrases and all that stuff in order. And then eventually you figure out clever ways to uh, use it to your advantage. And so that, 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 that change curve, if you will, that, that change cycle in terms of people's emotive response to change is almost inevitable. And what great leaders do is they accelerate people's transit through those eight those stages of grief to emerge on the other side in a quick in a quick as quick a way as possible if that makes sense i'll stop there so since we're talking to healthcare professionals are there unique struggles or advantages in enacting change amongst healthcare professionals um well yes yes and no the the, the steps in the cotter model have been shown to be relevant to healthcare in some studies that have been published and so 
in some ways, the change process is generic. Uh, the, the specificity with regard to healthcare is, of course, we work in often siloed environments and ones that are highly um, hierarchical in terms of power dynamics. So navigating change in, in the specific environment of healthcare does have some nuances that are specific, uh, but, but, um, but fundamentally the issues are the same, I would say. So one thing that people often express frustration with is that sometimes the people who really long for change in an organization don't feel that they're in a position of power to enact those changes that they see as necessary. So how would you advise those who are not in these dedicated leadership positions with power to help harness their individual power to enact meaningful change? Yes, it's a great question, Gretchen. Uh, it's a great question. And, you know, I'm aware of two uh, two realities here. The, the work of Richard Bomer frames the idea of what he called big L and small L leaders. The big L leaders are people that have big titles, you know, the CEO, the dean, the department chairperson, et cetera. The small L leaders are all of us making rounds, working with nurses, working with respiratory therapists, working with colleagues to implement change in a more local environment. And the point is these leadership competencies, change and everything else in this series in chess are applicable to both groups. But to your point, as a small L leader doesn't have a big title, um, I, I think that the approach can be slightly different in the sense of two things. One, recognizing that change and learning change is a, is a video, not a, not a snapshot. Uh, there's a continuous long process, long gestation period. And so learning these steps is appropriate for the most junior people in medicine because eventually they will be senior people and you'd like them to know how to uh, implement change more effectively than perhaps current leaders, number one. Number two, the tone of implementing change when there's a power dynamic is really more through an, uh, an, an inquiry lens, an inquiry tone. So a junior person might say, you know, I'm just wondering if there might be a better way to do this. You know, I'm a junior person, but I see a pathway forward and I wonder what you think, as opposed to showing up, you know, with guns blazing, if you will. So I think it, the fundamentals are the same. The tone is different. And this, of course, has everything to do with the culture of the organization. So my comments are fairly generic, but they should be situationally appropriate. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So if any of our listeners are intrigued by your talk and are looking to further develop their change leadership skills, do you have any specific books that you'd recommend for reading? Well, of course, we've alluded to John Cotter's work. Uh, John Cotter wrote a book called Leading Change. And of course, we've alluded to the Silverson and Kornacki model, which again is published in a book that they authored called Leading Physicians Through Change. Those would be, I think, two reasonable books. There are, of course, many different models of change. Um, a book called Switch by the Heath brothers is another useful model, although not constructed for healthcare specifically. There are other specific references in the literature. I'm aware of a recent paper by, uh, by Miles et al. using the Cotter model to uh, enhance GME recruitment. Uh, we studied this some years ago in a paper in respiratory care and the applicability of the Cotter model to uh, change avid respiratory therapy departments. So those are some core readings that the reader might want to consider. 
most of them are cited in that series in chest uh, that you mentioned earlier, Gretchen. So as we finish up this podcast, can you give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion? Well, uh, yes. Uh, again, thank you for the invitation to, to discuss this with you and our listeners. First, uh, change is an essential leadership competency, as, as we suggested. Second, uh, there is an orderly approach to implementing change, uh, whether it's the Cotter model or the uh, amicus model that we've been discussing, or frankly, other models. But having a disciplined approach to change and a way of thinking about it through a systematic lens is very, very helpful and very important to leadership success, I believe. Uh, I think those would be the two take-home uh, critical points I'd want to confer. Great points. I really want to thank you, Dr. Stoller, for your time and your expertise today. And also a big thank you to our chess community, as always, for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time. <laughs>